Looking over the MCU's blockbuster history, it's pretty clear that the franchise has a villain problem, but despite that, we've actually seen some fairly compelling criminals cause trouble for our heroes. Here are all the villains in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, ranked from worst to best. In the Dark World, Curse leads a prison riot, helps Malekith sack Asgard, and kills Thor's mother, Frigga. He also leads the battle against Thor in the film's climax, beating the Thunder God senseless with his brute strength. But even with all that, Curse is little more than a forgettable monster with no personality. Fenris, Hela's enormous wolf, is an undead beast who tries to finish off the Asgardian refugees toward the end of Thor Ragnarok. To the wolf's credit, the menacing green-eyed monster definitely looks cool, but sadly, Fenris really doesn't do much. After Hela animates her beloved familiar, he just sort of hangs out and looks mean while the death goddess interrogates a crowd of scared Asgardians. In the final battle, Fenris tries and fails to kill the Hulk. On the one hand, it's nice to see another bad guy from Thor's rogues gallery fit into the film. On the other hand, it seems like the only reason Fenris is included is because the Hulk needed something to tussle with during the climactic final battle. Laufey is a powerful force in Thor's corner of the MCU, but we never really see much of him in action. King of the Frost Giants is the biological father of Loki. He has super strength and ice powers, but he's still no match for the sneakiness of his own son. Loki manipulates events to get Laufey to attack Asgard and Thor, but just as Laufey is about to kill Odin, Loki takes out Laufey instead, killing the Frost Giant King and making himself look like a hero in an unceremonious end. Aldrich Killian turned out to be the A-list bad guy in Iron Man 3, with Brant and Savin shaping up as little more than B-list versions with the same powers. Both are given their superheating and healing powers by the Extremis virus, and they both attack Tony Stark throughout the film, but neither is a match for Iron Man, even when he doesn't have his suit. Scorpion is a pretty big deal in the comics, but in Spider-Man Homecoming, not so much. His most notable actions are complete failures. First, when an arms deal is interrupted by Spider-Man, and then later when he tries to get the Sinister Six going in prison before being shut down by the Vulture. Basically, he's just there to make Adrian Toomes look cooler by comparison. And when you're not as cool as the Vulture, it's safe to say you screwed up pretty bad somewhere along the way. It's easy to forget, but yes, Batroc the Leaper is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We meet the French mercenary during the opening ship hijacking sequence in The Winter Soldier. We get a breathless fight scene between Captain America and Batroc, with Cap accepting Batroc's challenge for a hand-to-hand -hand fight without a shield. Batroc holds his own, though Cap eventually knocks him out. But hey, at least he's a little cooler than this version. Spider-Man Homecoming gave us not just one, but two shockers. We meet the first shocker, Jackson Bryce, as he's wielding a shocker gauntlet. But after the Vulture kills him, the weapons pass to Herman Schultz. Schultz looks to be our main shocker in the MCU, and he gets one epic fight against Spidey before being sidelined. Shocker jumps Peter as he leaves the school dance, attempting to follow the Vulture. The villain sends Spidey flying through a school bus, knocking his web shooters off in the process. So why does Shocker rank so low? Because it wasn't even Spidey who took him out. It was Pete's pal Ned who grabs a web shooter and hits Shocker, distracting him long enough for Spidey to web into a school bus. Baron Von Strucker led the experiments on Loki's scepter that created Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch, so he's definitely important. But all anyone really remembers about him is his immediate surrender to the Avengers during the opening of Age of Ultron. No surrender! I'm going to surrender. In the end, Strucker was just another Hydra goon, cut off his head and nobody really noticed. When the Destroyer shows up in Thor, it makes full use of every moment. The Destroyer's giant, powerful arms and legs can crush or stomp just about any opponent, and if they don't kill you, its laser blast probably will. We saw the Destroyer kill a few frost giants, then lay waste to a small town in New Mexico when Loki sent it to Earth hunting Thor. Still, it was no match for Thor when the God of Thunder regained his power and overcharged the Destroyer, ending the attack. 
credits Sam Rockwell's unending charisma for Iron Man 2's Justin Hammer not showing up at the very bottom of this list. As far as credible villains are concerned, Justin Hammer is an absolute joke. He runs an arms manufacturer that's a rival to Stark Industries, except everything Hammer builds falls apart. The first version of the War Machine armor is basically a bare-bones Iron Man suit outfitted with a ton of hammer weapons, which works just about as well as duct tape and accessories to a car. To summarize, Sam Rockwell is great. Justin Hammer still kinda sucks, though. Dr. Samuel Stearns doesn't actually ever call himself the leader, which is his villainous identity in the comics, but the Incredible Hulk isn't exactly subtle about the eccentric scientist's destiny. The last we see of him, he's on the ground as the Hulkified blood he's just pumped into Emil Blonsky drips into an open wound on his head. If a Hulk sequel had come to pass, we would almost certainly have seen Tim Blake Nelson return as the psychic and super-intelligent leader. Nelson is perfect as an obsessed scientist who doesn't care much about the consequences of pursuing his goals across ethical lines. While he never actually turns green on screen, he shows plenty of signs of a moral compass in need of some fine-tuning. He clones a whole room full of Banner's blood without Banner's knowledge or consent, and he has no problem with the notion of turning Blonsky into abomination. And of course, in his final moments in the movie, he's seen smiling when any sane person would be horrified. In The Incredible Hulk, General Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross spends the entire film trying and failing to kill Bruce Banner. And for much of the film, he's a relatively one-dimensional military bad guy. Interestingly, however, Ross is one of the few characters from The Incredible Hulk to resurface later in the MCU. He became the U.S. Secretary of State in Captain America Civil War, pushing for the adoption of the Sokovia Accords, and even made cameos in Infinity War and Endgame, setting him up for even badder bad guy stuff in films to come. In an effort to capture the Hulk, humiliated soldier Emil Blonsky hits himself with an experimental version of the same gamma stuff that makes Hulks and Hulks, except it doesn't turn him into another Hulk. Instead, he becomes the Abomination, a monstrous one-note creature that looks like a rotting troll. Yawn. He lives through the end of The Incredible Hulk and is apparently in a jail cell somewhere. Dark Elf Malekith had almost no personality and basically existed as a freaky-looking dude trying to get an Infinity Stone, and Thanos already does that way, way better. It's a shame, because on the surface, Malekith is extremely formidable. He even stages a surprise assault on Asgard itself, breaching the city's defenses, and later sets his sights on Earth. He put up a heck of a fight against Thor in the final act of the Dark World, though the God of Thunder still prevails. Mickey Rourke's whiplash was one of the many problems in Iron Man 2, despite some admittedly awesome action scenes along the way. Whiplash never feels all that intimidating, at least after that epic attack at the Monaco Grand Prix. He's motivated by a vague, kind of boring backstory and teams up with Justin Hammer, who we've already established kind of sucks. And then there was that odd obsession with his bird. Tanelier Tavon, better known as The Collector, has a remarkably low-key career as an MCU villain. You might understandably question whether he's really a villain at all. Look carefully and you can see that he's pretty darn evil. As early as his first appearance in a Thor The Dark World mid-credits scene, we learn that one of his goals is to collect all of the Infinity Stones, but probably just for bragging rights, not conquering the universe. But a closer look at his expansive collection reveals a whole lot of unwilling prisoners. We're fairly certain that if the Collector were ever given a more active role in the MCU, he'd earn a higher spot on this list. There's something intriguing about the way he's been on the periphery of the narrative's most cataclysmic events. Mystery surrounds Tavon, including the mystery of whether or not he's still alive. When Obadiah Stane decides to take out Tony Stark while Stark's on an overseas tour in the first Iron Man film, he contacts the terrorist organization The Ten Rings, led by Raza to make it happen. Raza keeps Stark captive and proves an intimidating villain, at least until Stark builds his first version of the Iron Man suit and makes short work of Raza's soldiers. 
Raza was savvy enough to survive, and he tracked down stray bits of Stark's armor and tried to cut another deal with Stane. The problem? Stane was more savvy than Raza and used a sonic taser to paralyze him and kill his men. Despite his unceremonious ending, Raza is still technically the first villain we met in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and a throwback to the simple days of the MCU. Korath has a small but memorable role in Guardians of the Galaxy, which provided one of the most memorable moments from the movie's opening scenes. Hey, you know what? There's another name you might know me by. Star-Lord. Who? Star-Lord, man. Though Star-Lord gets the better of him, Korath still puts up a heck of a fight. He also manages to reacquire the Infinity Stone along with Nebula, which sets up Ronan the Accuser's near-world-ending attack on Xandar. Without Korath, Ronan would never have had the Infinity Stone to begin with, so he certainly served a purpose. He even holds his own against Drax the Destroyer for a while, at least until Drax rips out the cybernetic implant in his head, killing him. Hey, at least he went out fighting. Andy Serkis actually does an extremely entertaining job with Ulysses' claw in both Age of Ultron as well as Black Panther, which gives us a believable version of the claw we know from the comics and cartoons, a character who still has the potential to come back after his death as a dude made of sound waves. Hopefully, the MCU will resurrect this classic comics B-lister for future supervillainous action. Walter Goggins is a genuine delight every time he shows up on screen, and his appearance in Ant-Man and the Wasp is no exception. Sure, Sonny Birch doesn't do much compared to the likes of Killmonger or Thanos, but he might be one of the MCU's most comic booky villains ever. As a dealer in illicit technology, Birch is a character that, like the Vulture, operates on the fringes of a universe filled with magic hammers and alien technology. The difference is, Birch is the kind of sleazy mastermind who rolls around in a white and gold SUV, conducts his illegal business in broad daylight, and commands an army of nameless motorcycle-riding henchmen. Birch is the perfect character to have around to reinforce the idea that there's more to this world than Shakespearean gods and magic space rocks. She might not have been the big bad in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, but the golden goddess Aisha was able to cause more than enough trouble for Star-Lord and his team. The leader of the powerful Sovereign, she commands a fleet of remote-controlled warships that come within one shot of taking out the Milano following an extensive chase. Moreover, the post credit scene revealed Aisha seems to be responsible for creating Adam Warlock, a major player in Marvel's cosmic universe and someone we expect to meet in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. If nothing else, that makes her more than worthy of a slot on this list. The Chitauri basically served as cannon fodder against Earth's mightiest heroes in the final hour of the Avengers. Even still, they are a massive alien army, led by those positively terrifying gigantic dragon ships that tore through Manhattan. Their eventual humiliation notwithstanding, the Chitauri were more than formidable enough to push the Avengers to the brink in their first big-screen team-up. And when they returned for their big final battle in Endgame, their only strength seems to be in numbers, and they were defeated just as easily. In Captain America The First Avenger, Arnim Zola's appearance is basically just an easter egg. In Winter Soldier, however, the setup of having Zola around for the first movie pays off in a cool way. He might not be a robot with a camera for a head and his face on a giant TV screen built into his guts like in the comics, but what Winter Soldier's big reveal lacks in robot bodies, it more than makes up for by making him genuinely creepy. Anyone familiar with Marvel Comics knew some kind of villainous turn was coming for Mordo and Doctor Strange. While he spends most of the film as Strange's ally, the angry sorcerer abandons his allies after Strange makes his bargain with Dormammu. After the credits, we see Mordo become the nemesis he's long been in the comics, declaring there are too many sorcerers in the world. He's bound to be a challenging antagonist in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Plus, he's played by Chiwetel Ejiofor. The Oscar-nominated actor is not only a superb performer, but he's particularly great in villainous roles. 
The Black Order are perfectly serviceable henchmen for Infinity War. They manage to hit that sweet spot of being threatening enough to present the heroes with a challenge, but they also provide additional room for the action so that it's not just 40 people trying to punch Thanos at the same time. Ultimately, they're not so threatening that they overshadow the actual villain of the piece. Each of them is distinct and visually menacing, especially Ebony Maw. Unfortunately, most of them don't actually get to do much other than lose, so that's a bit of a drawback. In Guardians of the Galaxy, Ronan was a religious zealot who co-opted the Power Stone to continue his crusade to wipe out Xandar. But even without one of those awesomely powerful baubles, he's still a heck of a warrior. After all, he laid waste to Drax the Destroyer without even breaking a sweat. He also had the guts to stick it to Thanos, and actually walked away from the Mad Titan without much consequence. The Guardians were no match for Ronin individually, but luckily Star-Lord was able to actually control the Infinity Stone with the help of his team, his half-celestial powers, and some sweet dance moves. All of those things together, and Star-Lord was able to blast the bad guy into oblivion. Ant-Man's Daring Cross spent his entire career trying to duplicate Hank Pym's shrinking formula, but when he did it and created the Yellow Jacket combat suit, he didn't realize his copycat formula was actually messing with his brain, making him dangerously unstable. That led to a villain who was not only dangerously unhinged, but got some really cool fight scenes, the best of which was on a child's play table. Ant-Man and the Wasp's super-powered villain Ghost has a lot going for her. Visually, her flickering and phasing through objects is some of the coolest-looking stuff we've seen in the MCU. It's even better in the fight scenes. The shrinking and growing stuff is fun, but pitting that stuff against a completely different set of powers makes for some pretty compelling action. Since she seemingly reforms at the end of the film, we're obviously meant to like her. She has a sympathetic backstory as a victim of Hank Pym's egotistical past, but at the same time, we're also supposed to like Hank, so his part in Ghost's backstory still involves him ultimately being right. None of this is too surprising. Marvel is full of bad guys doing the wrong thing for the right reasons, but it does feel pretty clear that Ghost was shoehorned into Ant-Man and the Wasp, rather than building her more organically. Still, the effects are great, and Hannah John Common's performance captures Ava's understandable bitterness and desperation effectively. Diehard comics fans know Surtur is a major villain in Thor's world. In Thor Ragnarok, however, he appears only in the opening act and destructive finale. That's not to say he's not important to the story. In Norse mythology, the word Ragnarok points to the apocalyptic battle between gods that results in a world destroyed by fire. While Surtur is indeed the monster all Asgardians fear, Thor and Loki summon him to invoke the Ragnarok prophecy. This defeats Hela, but at a price. His attack decimates Asgard, crumbling the city and the sky to dust. When Marvel asked Annette Bening to play a villain in Captain Marvel, they probably didn't open with, you're going to be a giant, green, disembodied head with a bunch of gross tendrils floating in some kind of goo. That would be an accurate description of the character's physical appearance in the comics. But instead of the bulbous, floating head, Captain Marvel's creative directors chose to represent the AI that rules the Kree Empire as a kind of psychic projection. Everyone who communes with the supreme intelligence sees someone different, and in Carol's case, the intelligence appears as her mentor, Marvell. As viewers, we spend a lot of time in Captain Marvel thinking the Skrulls are the bad guys. Once the truth is revealed, it's Yon rog who's the most visible villain. Perhaps in the future, we'll see more of the Kree ruler, giving the Supreme Intelligence a chance to get a better spot on this list. Red Skull easily stands out as one of the most original and terrifying baddies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. In the first Avenger, he commands his own Hydra-branded Nazi division, complete with Tesseract-powered weapons, and has his own version of the Super Soldier Serum, making him Cap's physical equal. He vanished while trying to harness the power of the Tesseract Space Stone, but his surprise return as the Guardian of the Soul Stone in Infinity War only served to remind us how great he was so many years ago. 
He might have just been a disciple of Dormammu, but Cassilius was plenty intimidating in his own right. A highly trained sorcerer who went rogue, left the Ancient One's order to try and take out the masters of the mystic arts, and nearly succeeded. In Doctor Strange, Cassilius manages to destroy two sanctums, put the Ancient One's forces on the robes, and shows his prowess with magic in a few excellent fight sequences. Luckily, a quick-thinking Strange manages to turn the tables and win the day. The Tinkerer is exactly the kind of character that the MCU needed, for the same reason that he was exactly the kind of character that the comics needed, someone who builds all the gadgets the bad guys use to fight the good guys. He's certainly not the focus of Spider-Man Homecoming, but Phineas Mason is the kind of quiet bad guy who makes the MCU feel just a bit more real. Every great ruler needs someone beside them to carry their melting stick. In Thor Ragnarok, that job goes to Topaz, the sadistic and unforgiving right-hand woman to the Grandmaster, and she's a perfect match for her eccentric boss. While he delights in his games and acquisitions, Topaz stands nearby ready with his instruments of torture, always eager for the Grandmaster to melt people. Unfortunately for the Grandmaster, Topaz does not survive Ragnarok and crashes while chasing Bruce Banner, Thor, and Valkyrie during their escape from Sakaar. Topaz's service to Grandmaster is clearly not forgotten. In one of Marvel's shorts, we see that the Grandmaster has built a modest shrine to his former assistant in his new Los Angeles apartment. Of all the impressive things about Spider-Man Homecoming, one of the most notable is just how many characters the film pulled in from the comics. And the best minor villain appearance by far is absolutely Aaron Davis, known in the comics as the Prowler. In the film, he's hilariously and thoroughly unimpressed by Peter Parker's enhanced interrogation. What happened to your voice? What do you mean, what happened to my voice? I heard you by the bridge. I know what a girl sound like. I'm not a girl. I'm a boy. I mean, I'm a, I'm a man. I don't care what she was. It's one of the best comedic scenes in the entire MCU, but what really makes it special is Davis's mention of his nephew. As comic readers know, Davis's nephew is Miles Morales, who eventually takes the name of Spider-Man. As far as villainy goes, Davis doesn't accomplish much beyond a failed arms deal. Hinting at a future of the MCU that includes Miles, though? That's awesome. Sure, the Ravagers aren't all villains. At the end of Guardians of the Galaxy, plenty of them sacrifice themselves to save Xandar. But in the sequel, we see a darker side of these mercenaries. When Taserface takes over Yondu's Ravagers, everyone still loyal to Yondu is rewarded by being injected into space as their former comrades laugh and wave. Most of them are also more than happy to abuse poor baby Groot. And of all the survivors, only Kraglin refrains from trying to kill Yondu, Rocket, and Groot as they escape. As villains, the Ravagers don't accomplish a lot, and without someone like Yondu or Nebula supporting them, they don't provide much of a challenge to the heroes. But while they may be cannon fodder, they still give us a lot of laughs. Their well-deserved beatings provide some of the most fun sequences in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Brock Rumlow started out as a member of Captain America's strike team in Winter Soldier, eventually revealing himself as a Hydra agent when the attempted takeover began. He managed to survive and resurface during the opening fights in Civil War, where he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with both Cap and Black Widow before blowing himself up in the event that ended up driving the Avengers apart. For a villain, that's a pretty good way to go. Dormammu is one of the biggest villains in Marvel Comics, and surprisingly, the MCU actually kept the extremely powerful ruler of the Dark Dimension relatively close to his comics counterpart. Doctor Strange's trip to the Dark Dimension was practically a Steve Ditko panel brought to life. Dormammu is so powerful that Doctor Strange had no chance of hurting him, so he had to outsmart him to save the world, trapping the villain in a time loop where Dormammu killed him over and over, until he was forced to bargain for his freedom. It makes for one of the most clever finales in all of the MCU, and lands Dormammu high on our list of favorites. After one final explosive tussle with Gamora, Nebula joins the side of the Angels in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, but that's not true of every version of Nebula we meet. 
In fact, it's indirectly because of Nebula that Thanos gets to wage his final battle against the good guys in Endgame. When Nebula goes back in time to 2014 to help get the orb, the Nebula of that time becomes aware of her. The 2014 Nebula isn't reformed. She's still loyally killing anything and everything her father tells her to, as well as harboring murderous jealousy towards Gamora. 2014 Nebula is pretty tragic. Even when she's confronted by her heroic future self, the 2014 Nebula sees no way out. She clearly wants to be different, but she ultimately dies because of her refusal to change, even though the proof that she can change is literally standing in front of her. When Marvel signed Robert Redford for a superhero movie, you knew it'd be an interesting role, and his turn as Alexander Pierce delivered. He's introduced as the well-meaning Secretary of the World Security Council, an old friend of Nick Fury, though it's eventually revealed Pierce is actually a Hydra agent leading their infiltration of S.H.I.E.L.D. Pierce shepherded the program designed to create the networked helicarrier system everyone is fighting over in the Winter Soldier. He also planted bombs and the name tags of the other Security Council members, which he uses to brutally murder them when they challenge his takeover. He stayed evil to the end, too, uttering Hail Hydra with his dying breath after Nick Fury put two rounds into his chest. Now that's a villain. Ben Kingsley's character in Iron Man 3 wasn't actually the real Mandarin, and the all-hail-the-king one-shot short suggested the actual bad guy could still be out there, waiting to make his move. But that fake Mandarin still gave us the chills, at least until it was revealed that he's really just an out-of-work actor named Trevor Slattery, who can barely be trusted with a six-pack of beer, much less a gun. Still, though it loses some luster by the end, the Mandarin presented in the front half of Iron Man 3 is one of the scariest baddies in the MCU. It might have been a ruse, but it was effective. And you'll never see me coming. When Thor is suddenly marooned on the junk planet Sakaar, he comes in contact with the Grandmaster. In the comics, the Grandmaster is just an immortal dude who loves playing games of any kind. But in the hands of Jeff Goldblum, the Grandmaster becomes one of the weirdest and funniest characters in the MCU. Here's hoping we get to see a lot more of him in the future. Oh, well, maybe not as much as he wants us to. On any other world, I'd be like uh, millions of years old. But here on Sakaar... You have to respect where it all began, and Jeff Bridges' Obadiah Stane, aka Ironmonger, set the tone for the villains of the MCU in the first Iron Man film. Bridges' Stane is positively slimy, betraying Tony Stark and inadvertently setting his entire hero's journey in action. So really, we can thank Stane for kicking off the entire MCU. When his assassination attempt on Stark in the desert fails, Stane eventually dons the massive Ironmonger suit to try and finish the job himself. A lot has changed since Ironmonger stalked the skies, but his final fight with Iron Man had a brutal, messy feel that really let you feel the hate Stane had for Stark. And it still resonates, even in a world with heavy hitters like Thanos prowling around. James Spader's chilling voice brought absolute terror to the metal menace that was Ultron, with a near-endless supply of robot bodies and a design that had comic fans geeking out. He exemplifies how technology can be our greatest scourge, though Ultron does it with a wit that only Spader can provide, verbally sparring with the best of them. Like any great villain, Ultron also has a real motivation for his dastardly deeds. Looking at the facts, Ultron's final determination that humans and superheroes are what make the world such a dangerous place makes its own twisted kind of sense. The most amazing thing about Helmut Zemo in Civil War is that he's just an average guy with no real plans for world domination. He's just a man who wants revenge for the death of his family, and he's wise enough to realize the best way to take out the Avengers is to set them against one another. Yes, his plan does require a few big leaps of movie logic, but it was refreshing to see a villain like Zemo brought to life in the MCU. He's a great reminder that it doesn't take world-smashing superpowers to give Earth's mightiest heroes a run for their money. 
Iron Man 3 is one of the most polarizing movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Featuring an epic fake-out that reveals Guy Pearce's Aldrich Killian is actually the villain behind a mysterious rash of bombings and terrorist attacks sweeping the globe. His secret weapon? Extremis, a versatile technology that first showed up in the Iron Man comics and is reimagined here as a way to superheat one's body and literally regrow limbs. Killian's particular skill set makes for one of the most technically ambitious fight scenes in the MCU. It's sometimes hard to believe any villain can truly go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Tony Stark, but Killian made a heck of a run. Peter Quill's search for his father was a key part of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, a journey that brought him face-to-face -face with Kurt Russell's Ego, who's as bad a dad as they come. Ego is one of the most powerful villains in the MCU, right up there alongside Thanos himself. Ego is essentially a god who wants to literally become the universe by replacing all other life. And Russell sells it so well that you really understand where Ego's coming from. Even if he's a psychopath who's killed hundreds of his own children in his quest for power, Ego redefined the concept of daddy issues. Of course I have issues! That's my freaking father! Mysterio isn't the best villain in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but he might just be the cleverest. After 10 years of movies inspired by comics, the MCU proved with Endgame that it was its own distinct version of the superhero universe. A series of alternate surprises led to Mysterio, with a promise of a multiverse that could take things to the next level. And then we find out that it's all just one big con. Instead of being the way forward, Mysterio ties everything back to the very first Iron Man movie, and is one of the many things that made Far From Home the perfect epilogue to the Infinity Saga. In a universe of world-destroying monsters, the Vulture is decidedly street-level in his approach, but that's exactly what makes him work. The film's writers tweaked his backstory to make Adrian Toomes the father of Peter Parker's teenage crush in Spider-Man Homecoming, and he takes the girlfriend's angry dad trope to a whole new level. The effects team did an amazing job with his armor and appearance, with the Vulture looking positively terrifying and inhuman when he's stalking his prey. We've never seen Thor face a villain like Hela, the goddess of death, in any of the other MCU films. Much like Loki before her, this Asgardian villain is someone audiences will immediately love to hate. As soon as Odin passes away, Hela appears to the brothers and presents her plan to take her rightful place on Asgard's throne. To prove her point, she easily crushes Thor's hammer. The truth is eventually revealed that Hela once acted as Odin's executioner, leading the Asgardian army to victory over all nine realms. This secret history elevates Hela to epic villain status. Eric Killmonger essentially has a superhero's origin. His father is killed in front of him, his royal heritage is denied to him, and he uses those tragedies to motivate a relentless dedication, training himself to the peak of his abilities before seeking vengeance. That setup is a whole lot closer to Batman than it is to Ultron. When you add in the fact that Killmonger specifically wants to address a continuing history of racism, it's hard not to admit that he makes some pretty good points. Even if he's right, though, his goal is dominance rather than leadership, which makes him a true ideological opponent for T'Challa. It's one of the things that makes their final battle, in which they're both in nearly identical Black Panther costumes, so good. They're reflections of each other, both committed to fight for their ideals without compromising who they are. There's a reason Marvel Studios chose to use Loki as an ongoing villain for the Avengers. He's one of the most compelling, calculated, and charismatic villains ever. Tom Hiddleston is so good at being bad that Marvel opted to keep him around long after his bid for supremacy was foiled at the hands of Earth's mightiest heroes. He's still no match for the Hulk. But who is? Oh, wait, we know who. Thanos is the villain of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
There's been a lot of character work put into the cinematic version of Thanos, which is especially impressive considering that most of it is shown to the audience in Infinity War, a movie that's also juggling story arcs for dozens of other characters at the same time. Through it all, he's shown to have the same quality that all the greatest villains share. He thinks he's right. He's the hero of his own story, the only one who can step up and save the universe from itself, and is willing to sacrifice whatever he needs to in pursuit of that goal. In the comics, Thanos has been referred to as the ultimate nihilist, but the MCU's version is the exact opposite. He believes very much in what he's doing, which makes him even more compelling and more dangerous. Check out one of our newest videos right here! Plus, even more Looper videos about your favorite shows are coming soon. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell so you don't miss a single one.